Some of you, um, how many of you were at the Angel Game Friday night? Raise your hands real quick. Some of you were fun. Uh, listen, if I was to put something on the screen that said, make noise, what would you do? What would you do? You would make noise. So here's the deal. I have three kids, and I ended up in a section with some of the folks from MV who are fun, but I had no idea, so you're laughing now about this, I had no idea that my kids were capable of making the amount of noise that they did out of three very little bodies. Uh, These ear-piercing screams would just echo through the place when they would put a sign on that said, make noise. So my formal apologies to those of you that were seated around my children uh, on Friday night, even though we did rally the angels to a victory with my three kids alone. Uh, Jeff is gone on vacation, and uh, uh, I got to tell you guys, it's so fun. Uh, I get to be back, and I'm leading the Irvine campus now, and every single week we get together as the lead pastors of the campuses, and I get to hear so many stories through and from him about what God is doing in and through this community. Uh, And as Kim said, I got to know many of you really well in the course of the last year and a half before Jeff became the lead pastor here in March, and I'm so excited to see what God is continuing to do here in and through this church and this community. If this is your first weekend here, this is a place that you will find to be home, you will find it to be family, and you will be a part of changing South Orange County in lots of profound ways. And so I'm excited for him. Uh, Jeff loves you guys, and it's just so great and so fun to hear the way he talks about the story God's writing here. I don't know, did he talk at all about our Africa trip last week? A little bit? You guys would be so proud of Jeff. Jeff uh, went to Africa with us to Kenya to our church partner there, Mavuno. And he got this thrown into some stuff. It just happens when you go on missions trips, right? You just get tossed into some things. One of the things he did was a lab about communicating and teaching God's word. And it was interesting because there was about 50 people signed up for it and about 150 people decided to show up for it. And so they're just filling the chairs and they're out in the sun. And Jeff had these people... um, in just in tears about the power of God's word and what it looks like when it's expressed honestly through your own personal journey, which is not something they do uh, really profoundly in Africa. And it was so good, later on that week, uh, Pastor Marethe, the pastor of Mavuno Church, when he gathered his whole staff, he made all of them who are communicators, have the, he had Jeff do this lab again just for them. And so you guys have one of the best leaders and one of the best teachers uh, in God's kingdom right here with you in Mission Viejo. So you would be very proud of what Jeff did uh, on your behalf in Africa. Okay, how many of you like movies? Everybody's a movie fan. What are your favorite movies? Toss some out. Dumb and Dumber. Oh, yes, right? How good is that? What else? Blade Runner. Old school. Nicely done. What else? Star Wars. You are a Jeff disciple, aren't you? You can't get that guy away from Star Wars. What else? Huh? I haven't seen that yet. World War Z. Everything's zombies these days. Uh, Movies are amazing, right? Because they just transport us into these places. I'm a huge movie fan. I love, you know, all these things, Blade Runner and Star Wars and World War Z. Action adventure movies, like, my heart just gravitates towards them. And I think it's because... um, Like, I don't live this amazing life of action and adventure. Like, I'm a pastor, and so, like, my calling is to be loving and nurturing and to pray for people and encourage them. And it's like, I want to be like Jason Bourne. 
Like, give me, like, let me be the Jason Bourne of pastors. Like, let me just go, give me, like, five passports and a bunch of currency and travel the world and do crazy things. And so I get, and you're laughing at me, but I know your lives are kind of the same. Like, we escape in these movies and these action-adventure things. And I think for all of us, you know, we want our lives to be this profound action and adventure story. I think growing up, right, you talk to kids and they're always like, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that, and it's going to be amazing. And somehow something happens through the course of our life and we start to think, really, this is it? Exactly. That's what you think, but I'm telling you, wait till you're my age, bro. So we move through life and, and we want that. And they all have this same kind of formula to them, right? They sort of introduce these characters, and the world's perfect, and you sort of start leaning in and falling in love with them. And then they introduce the bad guy, right? And something goes wrong, and there's some kind of adversity or crisis, or you got to defuse the bomb, or you got to travel around the world and do something. And then at the end, the, the hero has this opportunity to come back in and just restore everything, and it's perfect again. And my hope and belief is that as we're going through this Bible series that you guys are starting to maybe see that that's kind of the story arc of the Bible, right? I mean, that when I grew up, I thought the Bible was kind of this crazy, boring book of rules. And it was like, oh, gosh, this is agonizing. Or I thought that, um, you know, God was the creator of everything. And then these two kids that he had, they sort of blew it. And so he just kicked them out of the house forever. Like, he just overreacted to sin. Like, in the rest of the Bible, it's this constant overreaction to sin and brokenness. But I think and I believe that as we go through this journey on the Bible together, we're getting to see that really it is the single greatest action-adventure story ever told and ever written. I mean, just think about where we've been already in this journey. We started, right, same pattern, creation. You introduce these characters. You have God. And you have everything he created. And you have man. And you have woman. And you're leaning in and you're going, this is beautiful and this is good. But then what happens? They introduce the bad guy, right? Satan, the serpent, the snake comes in, tempts them, evil's introduced. And you have the fall. And you have everything then just unraveling this crisis that starts unfolding. And so then all these stories start taking place about how to get back to what was originally designed. And so we've gone on these journeys, right? You have Moses and sort of the redemption and Abraham, the father of everything. And then you've got David and these epic battles and Saul and you have kings and all these things taking place. Daniel last week looking at what does it look like to live in this broken, fallen place just trying to get back to what was the original design and intent of all creation. And now we're entering this season of all these prophets And you have all these guys that Jeremiah and Isaiah and Elijah and Elisha, and they're constantly calling out to the people, like, return to what you know is right. Remember the story. Remember the truth. And they kind of lean back, and then they run away. And then they kind of lean back, and then they run away. And it's this constant turmoil. And after these prophets, everything just slowly starts descending into this space. And this space spans about 400 years. And all the world and God's people and everything, they they find themselves in this place of isolation. And God just goes silent. You ever had God go silent in your life? You ever feel like he, he gave you some promises or some words in your life? The profound dream that he introduced when you were a kid. And then he goes silent. And these people start to feel alone. They start to feel isolated. They start to feel forgotten. It's like 400 years of darkness just kind of sweeps in 
and takes over. And they live in this place alone and forgotten. The dream's nothing more. Think about 400 years. Like at that point, generations have passed. They're telling stories around the dinner table and people are like, that sounds nice, but I haven't seen any evidence of that in so long. And some of us today may find ourselves in that place. Some of us may feel just like those Israelites did in that day. Some of us may feel alone and forgotten and isolated. And today we're going to look at a huge turning point in the plot and in the story of the Bible. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for being the author of life and of creation and of us. And we believe and acknowledge that you're here and that you're speaking and that you are, God, inviting us into this grand adventure with you that you've written. I pray that you would help our hearts and our minds, our ears, to be open to hear you, to see you, and that you would reignite our souls for the way you designed us to be. We pray this in the power of your name. Amen. So here's what God says to those people in that day. Here's what he says to us today. John chapter 1, first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's interesting where he starts, right? What are the first three words of John chapter 1? It's right there. First three words of John chapter 1. In the beginning. Where have you heard that before? In the beginning. Like Genesis 1, right? Clearly, there's something he's making a statement here. A profound reintroduction about what's about to take place in the story of the Bible. And he says, in the beginning was what? In the beginning was the Word. Who is the Word? Who's the Word? Jesus. Right? It, it, always go with Jesus when you're in church. Right? So who is the Word? Jesus. He's saying, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. In and through him all things were made. So basically what John is doing right here from the very beginning is setting up the divinity of Jesus. You've often heard it said that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Have you heard that said? Okay, now you have. Jesus was fully God and fully human. In John chapter 1 right here, what he's stamping is he is divine. He is fully God. This is God coming to earth, to his creation. This is the ultimate sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back moment of God. Like everything gets sideways and he's like, I'll be back. This is what John is introducing to us. This is God coming, the divinity showing up. And what does he bring? He brings life. He brings light. He says, I'm going to reintroduce life and light and promise and power. All of those things that for 400 years I've been silent on. I'm coming back. And I'm going to reintroduce all of those things into your story. And it's familiar language in a familiar story. 
Let me ask you this. When do you usually uh, hear or see John 1 read? Take a shot. When do you usually see it? Somebody said it. Christmas. That's right. This is the arrival. This is usually when you see this story because this is the arrival. This is Jesus coming to earth. It makes sense that this is when you would see it. And so we think of Christmas and we think, oh, I remember that story, right? There's a manger, I think, and some animals and, and a, a teenage mom and, and her husband and there's this baby and people come and they worship and we sing songs and there's Christmas carols and there's light and candles and this is beautiful. And all of that's true. But what John also introduced in this passage is there's something so much more happening. And somehow, some way, this Christmas story is going to transform everything forever. Jesus is never again referred to as the word outside of this. But that theme gets threaded through the Gospels, particularly in John. And he sets it up in an interesting way because usually it's in this kind of context. This is a hard word, says his followers when he tells them that he's the bread from heaven. What is this word? Asks the crowd all the time when they're completely puzzled. My word finds no place in you, says Jesus, because you can't hear it. He's constantly saying, he who has ears, let him hear. He who has eyes, let him. Yeah, it's this confusing introduction to Christmas. The word I spoke will be their judge on the last day, Jesus insists, as the crowd rejects him. When Pilate hears the word from Jesus, he's afraid. Since the word in question is what we're celebrating, which is Christmas, which is Jesus claimed to be the son of God, that he's arriving and showing up. And we have to pay attention, not just the beauty and wonder of God coming, but to this strange sort of dark, mysterious thread that gets woven through the gospel. Otherwise, we sort of minimize and domesticate Christmas, which is not what tends to happen anyway as we get closer to December. We tend to celebrate half the story, you know? We tend to start rushing. We're always in danger. We think it's, it's about comfort and joy, but we think it's just about comfort and joy. And Christmas is also... Uh, about incomprehension and not understanding. It's about rejection. It's about judgment. It's about mercy. It's about darkness and light intro that darkness. And this passage isn't about just the living God telling us to say, hey, I've arrived and everything is all right. You don't see it play out through this chapter in John or any of the Gospels where Jesus shows up and he speaks truth and everybody goes, oh, of course. That's right, now I remember. That doesn't happen. There's this constant tension that exists. And you see this fight and this battle being waged over Christmas. And in verse 5, he kind of alludes to it when he says, the darkness has not overcome the light. That just lets us know that the darkness is fighting hard to overcome the light. Somehow the darkness doesn't want this light, this life, this Jesus to make his entrance into the world. And one of the Christmas stories that we don't talk a lot about in this battle of, of good and evil at war, like every great action adventure should have, one of the things that we often overlook is that there was a physical battle taking place over Christmas. Many of you remember, remember Herod? 
He was sort of the ruler over the land at the time, over Bethlehem and Jerusalem and that whole area. And he, he talks to the wise men, the magi, who were going to visit the child on their way. And he's like, oh, I think I've heard about that. And he doesn't want that to happen because he knows that that light in the darkness, that that is God coming to earth. And so he says, hey, would you stop back by here on your way out and, and tell me where he is? I want to go honor him. And we all know that that's not the case. Can you see the plot taking place here? This is amazing. And so the Magi get a sense that that's what he wants to do, and so they go a different way home. And so Herod realizes what happens. And look what he does in Matthew chapter 2. Don't see this a lot at Christmas. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So imagine an area. you got to understand Bethlehem and, and Jerusalem, right? Um, Bethlehem could be Ladera Ranch and Jerusalem could be Nellie Gale. Okay, that's about how far away they are from each other. He owns that whole territory. So imagine this entire South County area, Herod rules, and what he does and flips out is he basically goes and kills every two-year-old boy and under. Merry Christmas. There's a battle being fought over Christmas at this time. It's not some nice, happy, pleasant thing. And it's not just physically. Spiritually, there is a war taking place. Revelation. There's a book we don't go to much. Revelation chapter 12. Look at how it describes the spiritual battle that was taking place behind the birth of Jesus. I'm going to read this to you. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Who do we think the woman is? Who is it? Mary. Good job. This side of the room, well done. Who do we think this was? Mary. Good job, you guys. Okay, listen to this. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. What does that story sound like? Satan. What does the Bible tell us about Satan? How many angels did he take from heaven? A third. Do you understand the battle that's taking place, what they're describing? Listen to this. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour the child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Who's that? We're in church. The answer is Jesus. Listen, look at this battle. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then in verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the child. Do you guys see the action-adventure story taking place here? This is great. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of. 
Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed. This is where it gets crazy. Verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. This was not a one-time battle. This is something that Satan carries forward to today. And he wages war against you. That dragon, that serpent, that liar, that deceiver, all of those angels that got hurled out of heaven, it wasn't just about the coming of Christmas, the arrival of God. It's now about you. And he's waging war every single day against those of us that choose to believe this story and follow Jesus. How does he do this? What does it look like? John paints a little picture for us in these verses that follow. John chapter 1, verses 9 to 13, look at this. The true light, Jesus, the good light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. You see, Jesus shows up. He's right here. God is saying he was in the beginning. He was part of all creation, which includes you and everything that we see, the entire world that we operate in. Jesus is on display, and he's saying he's right here in every good thing you see and every good thing you're a part of. But yet, everything you've been hoping for and waiting for and longing for and the power and the promise and the purpose and everything you were designed to be, the giver of life and of hope, everything you want is right here. But what does Satan do? Two things. He's a thief. He's a liar, and he's a deceiver. So all of, if he can do is if he can just subtly deceive you so that you don't recognize Jesus and you don't receive Jesus, then he wins. And so everything he's saying, everything in his power is just to get you. The battle is all about getting you to not recognize and receive Jesus. Everything. You see, these people at that time knew they had heard the prophecies. They were expecting a king. They believed that God was going to show up and redeem them. And when he did, what happened? They didn't recognize and they didn't receive him because they expected him to show up in a certain way and at a certain time. And so Satan just subtly started twisting it and going, That's, is that the way a king looks? That's probably not your king. Because kings usually introduce themselves with power and with forces. Kings usually come with armies. 
They come with force. That's probably not your king. They didn't recognize him. And so they didn't receive him. And how many times does that happen in our life? Where we're praying for things. We're desperately seeking God. We're wanting him to show up for us. But sometimes he shows up in a different way than what we anticipated. Or certainly not maybe the time frame that we thought he should. And so what does Satan do? Oh, that's probably not him then. He's not listening to you. He doesn't care about you. You're alone. You're forgotten. He's not paying attention. He's not listening to your prayer. Satan's a deceiver. Look what it says in 1 Peter chapter 5. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You ever watched lions hunt? You ever seen it on the Discovery Channel or something? They're pretty smart. They don't waste a lot of energy. They're incredibly patient. They're shrewd. They lurk in the tall grass or in the shadow of trees. They stand back. They're looking for, for the prey that's weak, for the prey that's tired, for the prey that gets separated from the herd, for the young. And then they go in mass and in groups. That's what he's saying Satan is doing to your lives, our lives. Satan creates this this confusion, this subtlety in our life. If he can just disillusion us that we don't see Jesus in our everyday journeys, that he'll just pounce and devour. Ephesians 6 says it this way, our struggle is, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That Romans 12 battle, waging war, on the descendants. That's what he's doing. That's what they're affirming. And you see, Satan is in the shadows. He's in the subtleties of life. He takes the spiritual battle and he he subtly starts to bring it into our physical lives. And it's the little choices that we make that start to erode us. We start to think that when something happens and God doesn't show up in the way we want or in the time we want, we start to go, wow, that was a big coincidence. Well, that must have been fate. No. But all of a sudden, it plants a seed of doubt that somehow I need to trust myself more than God because he won't show up when I want him to or how I need him to. He starts to get us to make little choices to cut corners and kind of shave the edges on things. For me, it shows up in my life, and it has been. Materialism can start creeping in because I start saying things like, I need that. Ever say that? I need that. Or, I deserve that. God, don't you see what I do for you? How hard I work? For what it costs? My family and time and energy? My sacrifices that I've made? Certainly, I need that. I deserve that. All those things just start shaving and cutting the corners. And I start to think. I give in to that battle. You start to minimize the damage of our sin. We start to think our marriage, our relationships aren't what they want, so I'll just look at a little porn. It's no big deal. 
just once. I'll smoke just once. I'll do drugs just once. It's no big thing. I'm just with the family. I ah, just one drink. It always starts with just one. That's Satan. Deceiving. Lying. Stealing. The dream. The power. The hope. The purpose. The life that the light of Jesus wants to bring. And then it turns into a lifetime struggle. And Satan just sits back and smiles because he's devouring us from the inside out. See why this is a big deal? But here's the most important thing. Jesus is fully God. And what he introduced into the world, remember, overcame darkness. So we don't have to sit or stay or cower or be afraid or be in fear of these things. Because Jesus is also fully human. And that's a really important part of the story. Because he understands us. And it's what gives us the power to crash through the temptations and the fear and the isolation. And the next verse becomes a tipping point for that. In John 1.14, it says, The Word, Jesus, became flesh. So God, not God, but John at the very beginning, right, is establishing what? The divinity of Jesus, saying he's fully God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh. What is he establishing? the humanity of Jesus, that he's fully human and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So he's fully God. He's fully human. He has all the power that's ever been created. He, he created everything that exists. He knows our stories. He knows our purpose. He knows everything. And yet he also was fully human. And so everything we're going to see from him, this whole journey, anytime we experience pain or sadness or grief or laughter or joy, any kind of emotion, Jesus gets it. He's experienced it. Sadness, loneliness, isolation, all of those things. He's saying, I get all of that. And this is often what we celebrate with Christmas and even with communion, right? Is the, he was fully human. The pain he experienced on the cross for us. This is the salvation part. He gave his life that we don't have to pay our price of sin. All of those things are true. And yet, the word becoming flesh, what I learned and what was powerful this week for me as I was studying this, is still only half the story. It's just that salvation part. One of the most profound things is what's right after that. He made his dwelling among us. He made his dwelling among us. He came to live and establish a home in a place, a dwelling. And why is that a big deal? Because what he was saying is the kingdom has arrived and it's here and I'm back. As God in the flesh, fully divine and fully human. And here's what that means. I am now going to begin to overcome darkness. It is done. 
And I'm introducing this kingdom alongside this kingdom of evil. And I'm going to give my children a way through the spiritual warfare and the physical warfare that exists in this world. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show them and help them become all that they were intended to be and what my original design was. And what was that? If you go back to Genesis 1, there's these three verses. After God creates everything and declares it good, right? He creates man and woman. But what does he tell them to do? Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish, in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. What was the mission of God in Genesis? To create man to have authority and to rule over all of creation. So in the garden, when you have sin and everything gets broken, what's broken is the relationship, which gets repaired with Jesus on the cross. The redemption, that's salvation, that's eternity. What also gets broken is God's original design was to have man rule over creation. To have all the authority over everything he created. The rule of God exercised in man. And so what he's doing here is he's affirming both parts of that in the beginning in creation. He's affirming that the word became flesh and was paying the price for sin and it made its dwelling on the earth. It is going to rule over creation. And this is a big deal because this is why God had to show up as a man. It's not just to pay the penalty for sin to go to the cross. It's also to show us and to help us what it looks like to rule over creation. Because we got lost and we forgot and Satan deceived us. And it was to reclaim the authority of the original mission that he designed from the very beginning. And this is important because the last verse, John 1.18 says this, No one's ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, as in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. What's he saying? He's saying, look like Jesus. He's coming to show you what it looks like to bring the kingdom of good and introduce it into a world of darkness. For me, so much of my journey was about salvation and about becoming a Christian and then just waiting for eternity. And God's saying, that's not my design. My design was to have man rule over the earth, to subdue it with authority. And I'm giving you Jesus as an example of what it looks like on how to do that. Because he knows that in our brokenness, when he says, you're the king, what are we going to do? We're going to rule, but we're going to start showing up with power. And we're going to start showing up with authority that goes sideways because it'll be about ourselves and it'll be about selfishness. And God's saying, no, I'm introducing Jesus. And I'm going to reconcile and redeem everything the way I designed it. But most importantly, I'm going to show you what it looks like to be king. I'm going to show you what it looks like to rule 
over the earth the way I had originally intended. And that's what Jesus, that's what we get to see over these next few weeks. As we get to look at Jesus and his life, what we're looking at is an example of what it looks like to rule over the earth. He's revealing God to us. What do we know? How did he show up in humility as a baby, small, tiny, sacrificing all of that power? Everything he had gave it all away just to come and to do what? To be close to people, to touch people that were untouchable, to heal them, to love them, to introduce good and kindness and mercy and love and healing and forgiveness. These are the things that overcome the darkness in the world and in your lives and in our relationships. And that's what he's putting on display. He's saying, look at this man of God and see what it looks like to have the living God in the flesh among you. We're all taking part in the most amazing action adventure story ever. The question is, do you recognize Jesus? And do you receive it? That's really all it is. Or has Satan so clouded your eyes and my eyes and so twisted the story that we can't even see anymore the profound beauty of Jesus in the world around every single one of us? Let me pray for us this morning. Jesus did not come just to take us to heaven. Jesus came to help us rule the earth as children of God. What would that look like in your life today? Where has Satan been deceiving you? so that you don't recognize Jesus in your life. You don't hear him. You don't see him. I'm going to take some time just to let Jesus speak to our souls. I want to invite you guys just to be courageous to listen. If there's places you've been cutting corners, maybe minimizing the damage of sin, brokenness, choices in your life, this is a great opportunity and moment just to confess those and to allow the hope and the light and the power of Jesus to sweep through your soul once again. As we respond, there's always places down front on either side where you can journal, you can write, you can write your prayers or confessions and put them in a wall that people pray for. There's some people down front. If you want to talk with somebody and pray, we'd love to do that even as we're responding. But this is your time. To listen. To be courageous.
recognize and receive.